Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, March the 27th, 2019. This is episode 2409 of the Survival Podcast. 2409. It is Wednesday. That means it is dun -da -da -da, interview day. And we have a guy coming on named Daniel Allen to talk to us about Aircrete. Have you heard of Aircrete? I've heard of Aircrete, but I've never really dug deep into the subject. Here's what our guest says. Including furniture, you can build a home off-grid finished with appliances for about $38 a square foot. That's, that's pretty solid right there, guys, if you can do it. In fact, he says that if you make minimum wage but you're willing to tough it out for a year or two camping on land that you buy for as cheap as you can get, that anybody in one or two years can have a land, car, and a home paid for as part of that thing we call lifestyle design, true freedom. He describes it as living the life you want now versus the life you want someday. I'm all about that. And I'm all about learning new things. So learning about Aircrete is going to be interesting. Aircrete is homemade cellular cement. And it has great structural and insulation properties. When you make Aircrete, the cement is inflated to six times its volume with air bubbles. This makes it lightweight, but it also makes it go further. But it's something you got to get just right. We're going to be talking about today with our guest, uh, again, Daniel Allen, in just a bit. And uh, he has a, a website called tinygiantlife.biz. You're going to want to check it out. He does workshops on this. If you can get out to the Tyler, Texas area, you can actually do on-site workshops. And he's got video courses as well. We'll have them on in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. Um, you know, kind of what we're talking about today with, with Daniel is minimizing life. If you can live off-grid, you're minimizing everything in the in your life period i mean really if you think about it not being you know subject to the electric company right being able to provide your own needs and one of the ways that we minimize is to declutter to get rid of things well i never realized how much clutter there was in my billfold until last year when i when i came across ridge wallet and i did have kind of this like i really don't want to give all this stuff up moment and then i'm like you know what i'm gonna do I'm going to take everything out of my wallet that I really need that will fit in my Ridge wallet. I'm going to put my Ridge wallet in my front pocket like it's, like it's a liner lock knife, uh, clip to the inside of my pocket instead of this billfold on my butt cheek. And I'm going to do it for a month. And if at any point during that I'm like, I really want my other stuff back, I'll, I'll, I'll just put it back in my wallet. i start carrying my wallet again. No harm, no foul. Well, 16 months later, I am still in love with my Ridge wallet, and my old billfold is sitting on uh, a bookshelf in my office, and I really probably just need to get rid of it. It's gone forever. Now I have a minimized lifestyle. It's a lot more comfortable. Everything's a lot more organized. And the best part about it is all of those RFID tags that credit cards and IDs and all have now, all protected from people with a wand where they can sniff your ass 
with a little wand and find out all your personal information because it's protected by the titanium on the outside of the wallet. Check out RidgeWallet.com today. Remember, MSB members, you guys get a discount on them as well. Next up today, JM Bullion. I've been saying to put precious metal into your investment portfolio for 11 years now. Almost 11. Actually longer. I've been saying it on the air for a little over 10 and a half years. That's how long I've been on the air. Uh, but I've, this has been a tenant in my life going back 20 years. Put some money in silver and gold because it makes sense. Now, I'm not one of those people like you see on TV. Silver's trending higher if it goes back to its all-time high. <laughs> no, 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 no. And that's why I won't work with companies that advertise bullshit like that. That's why I work with real people that are honest and have integrity in this industry, jam bullion. They sell the same silver and gold, all those yuck yucks sell, for a better price with free shipping, and they even give you a discount if you're an MSB member. And how much do I say to put aside in silver and gold? Five to ten percent of your net wealth is a wealth assurance program and is a way that you can always pass down your wealth 100% anonymously. Silver and gold have a multi-thousand year history of being used as money and being used as a store of wealth. They are absolutely outstanding investments, but they are one piece of a well-diversified portfolio. And while I say 5% to 10%, I will be honest with you, my number for me personally is 5%. I think it's enough, but I think you need it in your life, and I think the place to get it is jmbullion.com. This company has been sponsoring this show for seven years. In that seven years, I have had companies like the Yuck Yucks on Fox News come try to get a place advertising here, and I have told them no. I have been loyal to Jam Bullion. They have been loyal to me, and they've been loyal to you, and they always take care of you. So I don't know why you would buy your silver and gold from anybody else other than jmbullion.com. With that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest again, Daniel Allen. He's going to talk to us about Air Creek today, building off-grid. He's going to talk about some other cool stuff like, uh, you know, building a, a subsistence diet of calories on apples, spindle apples. Is that possible? It might just be. We're going to talk about all of that more right now with our special guest, Daniel Allen. With that, hey, Daniel, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you, Jack. Hey, I'm glad to have you on, man. We're going to be talking about Aircrete today, and, and I've kind of renewed my my hobby recently of looking at uh, remote properties and things like that, looking for another property since we don't have one anymore. Um, and I think this is a really great topic because the first thing you think is, how do I put a structure on there? So we're going to talk about that, uh, whether it be a remote property, whether it be a lifestyle design choice to, to reduce your cost of living. I think it's awesome, but before we do that, like, How did you how did you get to where you are now where this is like what you do? Kind of I know your history is pretty long from your bio, but kind of tell people like how did you get started professionally in life and and how did it lead you here? Well, uh as you say I had a very crooked path getting here. Uh raised by government school, doing all the usual things that everyone else does, working jobs. Uh but you know, when I was getting tired of the rat race, I just happened to find your podcast. And, of course, that started filling my head with ideas, and I started looking at uh, uh, various alternatives. But then life took the usual turn. Uh, I moved back home, took an IT job, found love, all the usual things. Um, but that company wound up being uh, outsourced. Uh, they outsourced my job because Exxon had purchased the uh, company, which was the primary client for my company. And in a matter of weeks, that literally left me jobless. And, of course, you know um, – that was my own personal disaster. 
as one might say. So this was during the uh, the Great Recession, if you will, and so jobs were very hard to find at that time. Man, um, so basically what happened is I got really in a bind and. I cashed out my little retirement, and we paid for a little piece of land, and we got started. And, you know, I just committed to, to growing all my own food, and we built a little tiny house. Uh, we planted 400 trees on, on swales. We got goats and cows, and, um, you know, we had a tornado come by uh, reasonably close to us, which um, really just ruined the roof on the house uh, and made the walls start to have mildew. And I started looking for alternative methods of building. Um, you know, about that time, there was a number of people who uh, were getting me more and more interested in alternative building. So I started attending various workshops on alternative methane, uh, excuse me, alternative methods of building like rammed earth and earth ships and cob and uh, earth bags, straw bales. Uh, and ultimately what I found with all of that was that it's not only more expensive than conventional building, but it takes a great deal of work and effort to move that much material. And in the case of straw, it's just not really available um, in our area. So I began to contract a little bit. I got my AC license and moved back into more conventional uh, lifestyle. But ultimately, that has proven to be you know, not ideal, not the perfect life that I would choose to design for myself. So I discovered AirCrete while uh, researching and I went and attended several out of the country workshops and I just, I really fell in love with the idea because it's, it's such a, uh, a beautiful craftable material. Uh, it insulates, uh, it provides structure and it's something that I can throw in the back of my truck and anywhere I can drive to, I can quickly put up a, a shelter, but not just any shelter, but a nice shelter. Hmm. Um, you know, so looking at, at bug out locations and whatnot, uh, it made sense to have a structure that also wouldn't be uh, destroyed by pest. Uh, you know, while you're away, storms or yeah, I like because what you're saying there, like when you start talking about these other alternative building methods, some of them I know people get really attached to the idea, and I'm just like they're not practical. One of the ones that I was thinking of when you were mentioning these other options there is you know the airship built out of tires. I'm sorry, I've seen way too many people in their eighth year still ramming dirt into a tire. Uh, and you could say I can get the tires for free and the dirt for free or whatever. Like, your time is not free, right? No, I mean, no. you, if you take 15 years to build a house, you know, you, you could have <laughs> bought a lot of houses in that time. I'm just saying. Exactly. And, and having done all of that... Um, it's incredibly discouraging the amount of labor and then the, the physical pains and who not only that, who wants to gather up all this trash to make your house out of? I mean, that's not exactly easy either. Yeah, there is a question too. I mean, I, I try not to be like a anti tire Nazi cause I see uses for used tires and all, but I don't know that I really want to be working with tires for 15 years to build a house and breathing tire dust. I just, don't necessarily think that is a really good idea. Um, let's talk about Aircrete then. What what exactly is Aircrete? Okay, Aircrete is basically Portland cement that has been <laughs> inflated six times in volume. So you start with one bag of Portland cement, and it becomes six cubic feet of an aerated insulating cement product. And that's it in a nutshell. It's structural. It's, um, it's something that... 
um, you can build out of. You know, a lot of people have built domes out of them. Um, there's a, a certain crowd that really likes the dome shape. And, of course, domes being a compressive structure are very strong. It's like a continuous arch. So, uh, But certainly you don't have to build only domes. Um, we're uh, actually developing a little uh, getaway cabin that uh, one person can put together in just two weeks. And uh, like I said, because it's so portable, uh, it makes it very practical and very comfortable to be in because of the insulating value that is entrained. It's actually the air that creates the insulation. And, you know, the term aircrete is kind of the do-it-yourself version of what the industry knows as cellular cement. Only instead of using chemical additives, uh, we basically take soap and water and we make bubbles and we entrain that into the cement and those thousands and millions of microscopic bubbles are what forms the insulation in this cement. So how do we, how do you actually make it? Like I know you can't completely lay out everything. It's something you it's very visual, but how do you get that much air into the concrete? Well, we have a mixture of soap and water and we have okay. a pump and we have an air compressor. So these two are mixed together in a line, and it goes through a wand that is packed full of a fine stainless steel wool. And it's just like those little um, bubble wands you had as a kid. When you blow air through soap and water, it creates a little bubble. But because there's millions of pores in this structure, you're creating a, a very thick – it's almost like shaving cream. It's a very thick foam. And this foam is injected into the bottom of a mixture of water and Portland cement. And then you just simply use a drill and you just mix it and it will become entrained. It's actually the viscosity of the cement itself that entrains the bubble. So the soap is only a temporary way to get the bubbles into the cement. So is that highly specialized equipment or is this, it, it basically sounds like stuff you could get at any Home Depot or Lowe's? Oh, absolutely. It is just exactly that. Um, You know, you can use a mixing barrel with uh, casters bolted to the side so you can take the, the labor off your back. Uh, you just use a standard drill that's 8 amps or more, uh, an air compressor that can deliver, you know, preferably 40, uh, uh, 4 to 5 cubic feet at 90 PSI. You know, this is all off-the-shelf stuff. It's, it's nothing complex or complicated whatsoever, and that's what is so great. It's something that everybody can get their hands on, everybody can try, and... Um, You know, people even make yard art or privacy walls out of it. It's, it has other uses, too, besides just structures. Gotcha. So what is the cost of, of building with this material? Well, when you talk about building, the most expensive aspect is usually the finishing. So the shell itself, you put down the foundation and the shell of a dome, for example, And if you buy a pallet of Portland cement somewhere like Lowe's, who will actually give you a discount for buying in bulk, then you wind up with the shell between seven and nine dollars per square foot for your shell. And it's the finishing of that structure that will more than double that price from there, depending on what you're putting into it. If you're just wanting a simple hunting cabin or, um, you know, a storage shed or a studio, that's one thing. If you're talking about building a house, then, you know, appliances, flooring, cabinetry, uh, all of those other things go into that, and that price uh, expands exponentially depending on how much of that you hire out for someone else to do. Sure. I mean, and how do you deal with things like um, wiring, plumbing, et cetera, with, with something when you're talking about like a solid wall, basically? Well, 
you know, there's two approaches that, well, I should say three approaches. Uh, one is to put the plugs and everything into conduit in the flooring that's poured into the foundation in advance and build the remainder into the interior walls. Um, because this is also a very workable material, you can take a router, however, and you can just route down through the wall and make a path to embed conduits and wires into the structure, and then you seal that up with cement. Huh. Uh, yeah, So, and then the third option is, of course, if you could cast a structure instead of stacking blocks, then you can actually put all your conduits, your boxes, everything in place before you start, and you simply pour around it. Sure, and that would be obviously... Ideal if you can pull that off with the structure you're building. Yes. So why would people choose to build with Aircrete over, you know, I can put together sticks and bricks pretty quick. So what what is the big advantage of Aircrete? Well, you know, we talk about R value with insulation. You know, you talk about the cost of ownership of a structure over time. And with Aircrete, you don't have moisture and air infiltration that actually decreases your insulating value. So you have a structure that is very easy to heat and very easy to cool. Um, so you have a savings in the cost of ownership. But beyond that, if you actually compare the cost of fiberglass insulation to Aircrete, the Aircrete costs almost exactly the same as just the fiberglass insulation. However, it's not only insulation, it's structure. So you also have a component of being able to build your structure very fast um, and very affordably. You know, and like, so you live in Texas. I live in Texas. We do have the summer. We also call it temporary hell. Um, <laughs> how 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 good is this stuff at that insulative properties? I mean, you're talking about going off grid here, and I, to me, I've always said like, you know, one of the difficulties going off grid in Texas is not like dying of heat exhaustion in the summertime. So, like, how good is it at that aspect of things? Well, it's actually very good. Um, the R value, you know, unofficially comes out around 2.8 to 3 R per inch, which is similar to conventional construction. However, um, in actual tests where we build a vessel of a 4.5-inch thick block of aircrete and we fill it with boiling water, and we measure the temperature change in that water over an hour. So based on the pounds of water, we know exactly how many BTUs of heat are leaving through this material. And it winds up being somewhere around uh, 2.6 BTUs per square foot of wall. And when you compare that figure to a conventional, say, 2 by 4 uh, house, of a, a normal stick box house, it's actually using half the energy of a, quote, conventional 2 by 4 frame house. Hmm. It's pretty amazing. So do you do you have any of these finished in Texas that, you know, you can say, hey, I go in there in June and I don't die? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm working on mine right now, and yeah. we're, we're doing – we're teaching workshops. And so um, being that I'm trying to transition into uh, starting my own business, I have um, not finished that project intentionally uh, because we started it last fall, and of course, you know, building this during freezing or cool weather is, is a, a slower process because it chemically cures slower. Okay. But but now that spring is here, we'll be starting workshops and finishing that. So we should have two structures finished this year: a dome and a rapid build cylinder house that um, is actually going to be a bug out slash vacation uh, location uh, out in the far west Texas environment. And as far as affordability, how would you classify it as a structure for, like, a, a bug-out location? Well, you know, 
if you're looking for something quick and easy and you're not going to do much, literally you can travel out on a two-week uh, time period, or I suppose you could do it over time on multiple trips, but you could put up the wall, the foundation and the walls of a structure like this in just six days. And, um, you know, you're looking at just, uh, like I said before, around, let's round up, say $9 a square foot okay. uh, to finish the shell. And because if you're talking about a bug out location, you're not necessarily immediately worried about it um, looking perfect. Um, so you can literally use it at that point at the end of two weeks. You can literally start moving into it. And uh, so it's incredibly practical. So, you know, that to me is is also a great value to have something that is quickly available. I've actually talked to a lot of people who are looking for an option because, you know, the hurricane has destroyed their house. Um, and there's still people I've talked to that are recovering from the floods in uh, in Louisiana. So, yeah, and New Orleans. So they're they really like the idea of getting out of the FEMA uh, poison trailer and into something that's uh, quick and easy and something that's affordable. And when you look at a conventional structure, you know you've got uh, all your conventional tools and materials. Uh, in this particular location where we're building, it's 76 miles from the nearest town, and so um, you've got to account for every screw, every Every nail, every piece of material that's going out there, the logistics of it can be a bit of a nightmare. But with AirCrete um, and an online calculator we have, you can just throw bags of cement on a trailer. And, uh, of course, you'll need water. But anything besides that is really optional. It's, it's such an easy building structure. Once you have your tools and your material, you just go and you put it up. Gotcha. So where can these be built, like? You know, you've got building restrictions, and then you, you were mentioning kind of being really remote and having to uh, haul materials in. What do you what do you need on site to be able to make this work? You need a generator. You need an air compressor. You need an 8-amp or greater drill, a 32-inch mixer, and your little foam machine, which consists of a little pressure uh, washing uh, pump and a air regulator and a barrel with hinges, and then you need some wood to build a form out of if you're making bricks or to build a form to cast it in. Okay, and I guess the biggest thing you need is water. Yeah, you need water. Um, for each uh, six cubic feet of material you're going to make, you're going to require 10 gallons of water. And um, so, you know, in the case of our bug-out location, we actually went out there last year and put up a water catchment and a tank. So hmm. the water the water is now on site. And this is a location that doesn't have the option for drilling well because there's not an aquifer underneath this. And so, you know, it's about taking the uniqueness of your location and, and working according to that because – you know, water catchment is certainly easier and cheaper than uh, drilling a well in, in most locations. So now we've talked about using it as a, uh, a bug-out location, but we've also talked about using it as a house, a place to live, a dwelling. Uh, one of the things you said in your show notes uh, prep for me was that a person who really wants it, even if they're on minimum wage, could end up with land, a house, and a car in one or two years. So how long does it really take to build and actually build a starter house, something a person not only could live in, because you could live in a box, right, but, like, right. would actually want to live in. Right. Okay, so let's take an example of a one-bedroom uh, dome, because I have the numbers in front of me here. Um, let's make it 24 feet, which gives you enough room for a living space, a small kitchen, uh, a bedroom, a bathroom, and a small walk-in closet. 
It's um, about 425 square feet. And the cost of this structure uh, for more or less getting it ready to put cabinets in and to uh, move into would be around $6,800 based on, you know, current big box store prices for materials. Um, and that's only $13.85 per square foot. So, you know, you can you can make that if you're a disciplined person reasonably quickly. You know, somebody who's working, uh, you know, say 38 hour, uh, um, a week at minimum wage, you know, you can, you can pull in $200 you can put in your pocket pretty quick each week. So you see that it, it becomes possible to put up a shell of something like this very quickly. Now I'm, I'm a big fan of, of not continuing to pay uh, a rent or something. You might consider putting up something in the terms of a quick and easy structure, something smaller, something you can complete as a temporary uh, shelter that gets you out of paying the rent, gets you out of, uh, you know, potentially paying a mortgage very quickly. So when you look at a small structure like that, that's nothing more than a bedroom and a bathroom, uh, you could almost call it a yurt, then you're looking at $1,462 to put something like that up. Okay. And that, so that's where this lends itself to uh, a unique opportunity, if you will, to build something small and quick and get on your land right away. And that gives you the ability to then expand more quickly as less of your money is going out to other expenses. Makes sense. I'm the other time limitation here, though, is is actually just temporal. Like, how much man hours does it take to make this thing happen? Like I said, I've seen a few. We're building our airship in like eight and a half years, and they're pounding a tire, right? <laughs> so, like, if a person was going to build something, you know, uh, you go back to your twenty four foot one, the actual kind of one bedroom house. Um, what type of number of man hours are they looking at on the labor to get the shell done? Okay. I can give you an example based on actual experience because we've okay. built these in Mexico uh, and we've built uh, one in California now, uh, as I quote storage said. And a 24-foot dome is something that once you have your tools and your process laid out and you actually get rolling with this thing, it can take one person 14 days to finish the shell. Okay. Now, what that looks like is coming out each morning, you've got to break down your molds and remove all of your blocks and cut them to size. And so you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of, of say, two and a half hours uh, to break that out, clean your mold, put it back together, and then mix more aircrete and fill it. Okay. Now, with those blocks, you then spend probably, it depends on how quickly you work and how much you're willing to do in a day, but say you spend another five hours that day stacking those blocks. You're up to seven and a half hours, and you've completed one course of blocks, and these okay. blocks being roughly a foot in height, and in a case of a 24-foot dome, that we actually raise the equator up off of the ground by two feet so that you don't bump your head into the, the side of the structure when you walk up to put your shoes on. And that means you, you now have a height of about 14 feet. Well, that's only two weeks of work. If you stick with this and you can consistently put seven and a half, eight hours a day of work in, then yes, you can get this done in two weeks with one person. With one person. And obviously, 
two people would move, maybe not twice as fast, but faster. And you're probably still looking at 14 days because you're cutting your hours, but you still have curing time. Well, it's interesting. Um, in the case of stacking a dome, you can make as many blocks as you can make molds for okay. and as many people as you can get mixing those. So you could conceivably, I mean, if you really wanted to take it to the extreme, have one massive day where everybody comes out and mixes all the blocks for the whole structure and fills up a large form. Um, not realistic necessarily, but it just shows you that the labor can be divided. And after the blocks have cured 24 hours, even though they're not full strength, if you can pick them up without cracking them, then you can actually begin to build with them. So you can literally pull them straight out of the mold and build with them. Now, it, these are, because these are homemade, and I should make that distinction too, you know, the industrial version of autoclave aerated cement is cured with steam. Uh, the homemade box takes 28 days to come up to full strength. Okay. So while you, you can build with them right away, and honestly, uh, they're more than strong enough. We have three and four people walking on top of these, even though the aircrete's only three and four days old. So uh, it's really not an issue at all with the strength in that early time. It's just kind of adapting uh, and being intentional to handle things carefully so you don't you know, break a green block. Got you. So you've been talking about blocks. So we have these blocks. I guess then they are fitted together, and then you, are you using more aircrete on top of them? Like, how are they mortared together? I mean, how does that work? Yes, they're uh, they're mortared together with uh, a, an additional mix of aircrete, but it has a cement bonding agent added to it, so it really grabs a hold of all the blocks really good. And this is a point of uh, – it's a little bit of a, a point of contention whenever you're teaching people to do this, and you've got to really watch this. A lot of people want to stick rock and bricks together, so they keep adding more and more cement to the mortar um, and making it thicker and stickier, which uh, this is not – brick mortar this is aircrete mortar it's actually pretty thin so um, when in the case of building a dome where you actually have to tilt the blocks you actually put wedges of finished aircrete or, or cut blocks into the spaces uh, to prevent the block from settling back and smashing that thin aircrete mortar out um, and it cures with the same consistency then of the block itself and an insulative property because you don't want a hard, rigid mortar next to a softer insulating aircrete block because in theory, as it, the structure heats and expands and then cools and contracts, it could eventually cause cracking throughout the structure. So can you kind of summarize then the advantages of, of building with this system and how it maybe fits into something we talk about all the time here on TSP, which is lifestyle design? Well, you know, you can build houses with one caveat, and that is that the homemade version of this is not code approved. And so, you know, getting that approved means getting a variance with your building inspector if you have to take that route and that is the best place to start. Um, now, for places outside in the country uh, where there aren't building permits, which there's a lot of that land, um, it's very useful. You can use this, uh, for example, to not only build your house, you can build privacy walls. Um, I have built uh, aquaponics raft uh, beds that contain the water out of Aircrete. Um, it's also useful for solar greenhouses because it's insulating. You can make your north, your west, and your east walls out of this, and it doesn't break down in moisture like wood does, and it doesn't corrode and rot like aluminum does. 
And so it's a very uh, good structure for uses in food production as well. Um, you might even look into uh, just using it for uh, making nice decorative flower pots around the house. So, you know, the uses are kind of up to your imagination, but it's definitely very practical uh, in in terms of a homesteading life or a preparedness life. Um, you know, like if your house were damaged and you could set one of these up very quickly uh, or perhaps you build one of these in advance and, uh, you know, you get that multiple function out of you function stack that so that, uh, it's your, it's your storage shed, it's your storm shelter, um, or, or maybe later it becomes your plant starting area for your, uh, uh, garden. The concept of a storm shelter is very attractive in, in the south and, and southwest, southeast, because we do have tornado season, and it, it is no joke. And there's a lot of places where, you know, kind of the in-the-ground in tornado shelters just are not doable because of we have a lot of rock in the state, uh, Texas anyway. And, you know, up in, like, people don't notice, like, the state that the most people on average die in in storms every year, tornadic storms, is Tennessee. Which, which doesn't seem to make sense until you look at how long Tennessee is. It's a, people think of this as being small because north to south you blink, you're through it. But tip to tip, it's a huge state. And a lot of that country is granite. So dome structures are incredibly strong and incredibly storm resistant. So I think a storm shelter that also, like, it's not just a storm shelter. Like you said, it could be a storage facility, a guest house, what have you. Um, and I think even in places where you can't have it be a house, according to your safety inspector, Department of Making You Sad Guy, it's just my shed, right? No, no one's prevented from going out and being in your shed, maybe even overnight, you know? Exactly. And in California, which is one of the toughest states, because they don't allow cellular concrete, uh, from, from my understanding, uh, even with the commercial product because of, of potential earthquakes. Uh, now, having said that, they actually tested one of these on a uh, seismic machine, and the machine broke before they could shake it apart. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's no official test results there. But, you know, whenever you look at the the, the wind drag of a dome, um, you know, they've used that to put tornado measuring equipment inside of it because the air just physically can't get a hold of it and pick it up. Um even a round structure, uh, we were doing a wind load calculation on a 10-foot-tall round structure, and with that coefficient of drag, you only wind up, you wind up with roughly 95 pounds of wind force at 185 miles an hour per square foot. And actually, that is well below what this material can handle. Now, it's a compressive strength structure but it doesn't have the tensile strength you know in the same way they build bridges with rebar and cement or the foundations of your homes uh, you also need a tensile strength added to this and with aircrete building that is a reinforcing roofing fabric it's a commercial material that's already available and it provides all the tensile strength it's like a miniature rebar if you will but it's a it's actually a fabric that is wrapped and bonded to the structure so does and, that mean, just so I understand the logistics here, we build the structure, and then we wrap the structure in this fabric, and then we put some kind of a layer over it? Is that what you're saying? Well, you after your bricks are stacked or your building is poured, uh, you literally uh, apply a coating of aircrete mortar to the block surface. Then you apply your fabric, and then you work it through the fabric with a trowel, and then you put on a finished coat of cement 
which is not aircrete. It's actually a very hard material, and at that point, it's finished. It can be painted, or if you would like, you could put in a, an acrylic stucco on it for a final finish. Okay, that makes sense. So who who would be capable of doing this? Like how how much physical labor is it, you know, that type of thing? Because everybody says everything's easy until you go do it, including the people that are ramming tires with dirt. <laughs> right, absolutely. You know, if if you have an office job and you don't do anything, you know, it takes a little bit of time to get into shape. So the reality is that you can break this construction process up into manageable chunks. Um, you know, uh, you don't have to work it all day, every day. You know, in the example of the 24-foot house, maybe one day you come out and you break out the blocks and set up your mold back up, and then you come pour it another day. Um, so you basically just manage it in chunks that you can manage. Um, we had a 76-year-old man who has built his own home, And, um, you know, he he just moved at his own pace. And if you're somebody who can't climb a scaffold or a ladder or you're not stable on your feet, um, it's also pretty easy to teach this process to unskilled labor. And as long as somebody that is knowledgeable is overseeing the process, uh, you can get it done. So, you know, if you're financially limited and physically disabled, um, you can still get it done. Uh, you don't have to lift a 92-pound bag of cement. You know, what if you just pick it up one quart scoop at a time until you get it done? Yes, it takes longer, but you still can get it done. So really, I would say that uh, a a mental preparedness attitude is is really the key ingredient in getting something like this done. Got you. So um, we've talked about dome structures, and there's a lot of advantages there. Can you build other dwellings in other shapes? and Uh, how is that different if you do so? Well, um, you can make blocks and stack them into a more conventional square structure if you like. Um, uh, you can use a pole barn style and use the aircrete for infill. Uh, you can also build molds and literally just cast it like a monolithic pour in place. Uh, and you can build round structures. You can build square structures. I mean, there's... It's a very artistic material, if you will. It can be shaped. Uh, if you wanted to, you could cast this stuff into a wall, and then you could scratch and etch it to appear a stone or brick, and then you could stain it, and you know you could literally build something that looks just like a castle out of it. Hmm, that's pretty cool. And I've seen like on your site, I was looking at some of the different designs, like round structures, but they're not really a dome. They're more like a tower shape, a more conventional roof. Uh, I guess those generally would be you build a form and pour it instead of make blocks. Exactly. Uh, for the bug out location, it's actually an or hunting cabin. It's my preferred shape is the cylindrical structure, and the reason is you can get that cheap um, quarter inch utility grade plywood for between nine and eleven dollars a sheet. And you just put it together, and because it's it's round, it uh, it supports itself very well. And you put this on top of your footing, and you just start pouring aircrete. And literally within two weeks, you can be ready to move in. You can. You, the, you, it's actually cheaper to put on a more conventional roof on a structure like that, uh, such as two by twelves that are insulated. But you can also finish that with a dome. And these these round structures are, are incredibly fast to put up. So to me, that's the biggest advantage. They're they're affordable and quick to put up. 
Uh, it doesn't require you to make blocks and then mortar blocks and, you know, haul blocks and whatnot. So, um, yeah, the round structures are, are actually my favorite because of how practical it is to set up. And because it's round, it's cylindrical, uh, the air drag, even from a tornado, is really not going to grab hold of it. Absolutely. So would you say that maybe there's people this isn't for, like this is probably not the right decision for them? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I would uh, I would say if you have to be able to pull a permit and you're not willing to do the groundwork and get the engineer and the, and the lab and you just want to go pull a permit and set this up in your city, this isn't for you because uh, it takes a great deal of work to convince somebody who uh, doesn't like to get outside of what they know to give you a variance, to give you a permit. Secondly, a bank is not going to finance this. So if you want to do build a conventional house, you want to run down to the bank and get a loan for this uh, and, and just uh, pay someone else to do it, uh, There's that's just not going to get financed by a bank. And on the flip side of that, if you're going to flip your house or you expect to sell your house and just move away very quickly, again, you have the issue with you're going to have to owner finance it because a bank is not going to knowingly finance a homemade aircrete structure. Um, if you can get no help and you're not going to be able to pay labor uh, and you can't climb a ladder, then certainly, uh, you know, I wouldn't encourage you to climb a ladder and do something you're uncomfortable doing. So those are the the main groups of people. It's not conventional. It truly is alternative uh, construction. Gotcha. I think one of the, the gotchas there, too, then can be, so you, you put all this effort into a property, you build it. One thing we always have to think about is what is our exit strategy exactly. if we want to sell it. So you can't finance it to build it, which means most likely no one else is going to be able to finance it to buy it, at least with the value of the structure. So somebody may be able to get land financing on that 20 acres you have, but you're, you're going to have a hard time selling it to anybody that's not a cash buyer. You are. Now, having said that, there are private individuals out there who, like investment bankers, uh, can make their own personal decisions to finance. But, no, you, you can't just run down to the bank and sell this and, and move away with the money in hand. However, with given the price of building a structure like this, um, they really lending themselves to being more in the lines of tiny and small houses. Uh, it doesn't cost a lot to build one, and, and you probably could owner finance it, um, which makes you more money in the long term, but it does not give you the money to just run down to the next county or the next state and have the money and cash in hand to start over. Absolutely, and that's not a reason not to do it. It's It's something to think about, and how much do I – How much do I put into this if it's not my forever place, right? That's that's kind of where I'm going there. Because, like, when we moved here, we found this house. And just looking at the pictures alone, we're like, oh, we'll buy it. It was uh, $260,000. And I looked at the kitchen and went, that's a $100,000 kitchen. I mean, this okay. thing was just – and it was a geodesic dome. Right. It wasn't even non-typical construction. It was just round. Right. And we could not get financing on it. And the reason we couldn't get financing wasn't so much because the bank wouldn't do it. No appraiser would appraise it. No, no. It was it's just not... ridiculous because they couldn't par they couldn't pull a comp is what they said. Right, right. Yeah. Now that's... the city of Mansfield had no problem saying it was worth more money and taxing accordingly, but uh, yeah, it was almost <laughs> impossible to get financing for it. 
Oh, of course. Yeah, that is the issue. Uh, it is it is out of the ordinary. Now, again, you could build it square, but um, yeah. what what do you compare it to whenever you're going to assess a value for it? Um, you know, it would be something that would be more considered a garden shed, a storage shed, or something along those lines. You know, and you not- do make a good point about it being better as a small house type thing. So kind of like my thing, like I've always said about tiny houses, if I was going to use tiny houses, no matter how you built them, is a compound approach, right? So you kind of build like your initial structure. And then like, well, you know, to be a lot more room to cook if we had a kitchen. So we built kind of a kitchen structure. And then you build like, well, the kids, they're having kids now. And they will build the kids a house. And then it's, it would seem to me like with this type of material, you could kind of almost George Jetson it like where you could – Build another one next to it, and then create kind of a um, an archway to connect. You know what I'm saying? Kind of almost like thinking about like space pods or something. Oh, absolutely! You can you can overlap the structures and just you can literally take a wood blade and you can just cut the wall out. Uh, it's not like hard hard cement. It's easily workable, so you can literally create new doorways as you add on. Or yes, you could build an archway across the front to connect structures together. And if you like the the earthship type design, uh, why not build an arch that connects all your structures in a line and make that an a uh, an attached greenhouse? Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's kind of talk about some other stuff that you have here. You have something here you call spindle apples. Yes, you got to feed yourself once you have your your place to live. Yes. Like so, what what are spindle apples? Well, the, the tall spindle apple system uh, is a system that's been developed by universities uh, all over the country uh, to bring a person into uh, profit as quickly as possible. You, you literally start getting apples on the second year of production, and they're trimmed. They call them tall spindle because of the shape. It's basically a columnarized uh, set of apple trees where you tie the limbs down so the hormones go out to the, the tips and it produces apples sooner. Um, you cut cut them off to where they're only three foot uh, wide. So in the same way you might see tomatoes in a greenhouse that that look like they're almost all tomatoes and and few leaves, these trees look like this. But at maturity, one tree is expected to produce 200 or more apples each year. And so you have the first advantage of getting production in the second year uh, in the neighborhood of, of 20 to 30 apples per tree, and then maturing into 200 apples per tree. It's a trellis system where you actually have to tie the trees up because you don't want them whipping in the wind and putting energy into building a thicker trunk. You want to get these trees to 10 foot in height by the end of the second year because once they start setting fruit, uh, they really don't grow much more after that. And so it's a it's a high production apple system. Now, what really intrigues me about fruit trees as opposed to gardening is you plant them one time and they could potentially feed you for a lifetime. And um, actually, when you examine the uh, human digestive system, uh, it actually really is optimized for digesting fruit. Now, I, having said that, you have to mention that not everyone's microbiome is in the good enough shape to just go to eating fruit without having problems. So it's not always or never. Um, but it is interesting that if you survive, and you remember the story of Johnny Appleseed, you know, yeah. those, those apples helped a lot of people survive. And so, you know, as a survival food, there's really nothing that you can produce more food in a smaller space. You, you put these on a 10-foot uh, trellis system and you space them 11 foot apart so that the sun can shine all the way to the bottom 
from the next row of trees. And if you examine that and you look at the number of calories that you have to have when you're digesting fruit, uh, you can have one row of trees 40 foot long that can actually put you into a state of survival. And that's amazing when you consider 11 foot by 40 foot and you're surviving. And what, is that, the, uh, what is the spacing on the trees themselves? Three foot. Three foot. Yeah, so they have, every 12 feet, you've got four trees. Yes. Okay. And, uh, you know, when you do this, I would encourage to buy metal tubing for uh, to hang wire on as your trellis uh, because uh, we've had some issues with the modern treated timber, even though they're four by sixes. They just seem <laughs> they'll just break off at random and the termites will eat them anyway. Yeah. Yeah. The termites don't eat steel. That's 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 one of the good things about steel. Uh, this is kind of a cool thing. So you've been actually doing this. You've been growing them this way in Texas. I have. Have you found any particular varieties that do better than others? Well, we're having some struggle with uh, uh, the, uh, the apple rust um, okay. because we're in East Texas where at exactly the wrong time of year, it starts raining and it stays wet and it stays humid for a long period of time. So, you know, your, your uh, mold, mildew, your spores of every pestilence you can imagine gets up into the into the trees now. Um I haven't found one variety particularly uh, any better than another, except I will say this. Fuji apple, um, it tends to produce way too many branches and requires a bit more uh, TLC to keep them in shape. Okay. And are you using semi-dwarf, dwarf? What, I mean, what kind of rootstock? Or... Well, now they, they recommend a dwarfing rootstock, okay. uh but after uh, ordering apples from Cuffle Creek and talking to them, uh, I actually tend to agree with them, and based on my experience, uh, agree that uh, not using a dwarfing stock is better because it's a much stronger, healthier tree that you don't, you know, it takes less fertilizer and care and attention to keep that little tree healthy, whereas a dwarfing root stock just doesn't reach out the way a, a regular root stock does. Yeah, well, you control this tree and any tree's form with pruning, and I, I've always thought controlling with the rootstock is probably not the best idea. And, you know, I'm looking like Un University of Massachusetts is uh, is championing this method. Pretty cool pictures I'm looking at on images right now. There's a big difference between the soil in Massachusetts and the climate in Massachusetts growing an apple than Texas, whether it's your red clay or my black prairie. Like, it's, it's a harsher environment here, and anything you can do to give that tree more resiliency just seems to make sense to me. Oh, I agree completely, because, you know, in Texas anyway, you know, in the north you have a, a dormant season when it's cold, but in Texas we have a, a dormant season when it's cold, but then we have a second dormant season. Uh -huh. <laughs> once the, Yeah, it gets so hot that basically the bacteria in the soil say, yeah, I'm done for the, for a while. And the nutrients aren't in the soil. So with a dwarfing rootstock, uh, the tree doesn't have the reach to really get out and grab that. And I can see the difference between my dwarf trees and my standard size trees. Uh, the standard size trees, they just go on. I don't fertilize them. I don't even generally water them. And they do fine. You know, this is really interesting. It's something I'm going to have to look more into uh, is developing a full system with it because – You talk about survival, and survival is about more than calories. Like, and you mentioned Johnny Appleseed. This country ran on apples for the first half of our existence. What destroyed the apples in this country was prohibition. People don't realize that. More people drank hard cider than beer before prohibition. Beer 
was like, Prohibition's gone. And then, like, it's, you can commercially make alcohol now again, right? And, okay, well, all the guys that ran the orchards were going broke, so they cut the trees down, so it's going to take us years to have apples again. I know, let's malt barley and make beer. And that's when we really became a beer-drinking country. has a lot to do with the uh, distilled alcohol as well. But you go back to that time, and it wasn't just hard cider. You had apples. Okay, so now you had juice. You had jelly, you had vinegar, you had cider both hard and not hard. Um, you had apple butter. Like the apple was the foundation of the homestead. When people would get, you know, their 40 acres and a mule or whatever, the first thing they would do is plant an apple orchard generally from seed. And they would plant, you know, full-size trees, just a buttload of them. And over time they would be able to, okay, this is a good apple for making cider. This is a good apple for making vinegar. Now, if I can make cider and vinegar and I have eating apples, I've got so much of that survival component taken care of. I can sweeten with, with certain apples. I can use vinegar for curing, etc. And so the apple has this incredible array of things that it can do. So I'm kind of glad you threw that in there. Yeah, the apple is is really pretty miraculous. You know, I, I don't want to sound like a, uh, a, uh, a snake oil salesman, but, you know, when you look at what you can do with an apple, um, as far, when you talk about survival, you can get to a point of survival very, very quickly. And, you know, from that, you can add on the layers of luxury and the things that you want in your life to just live that better life. But, Honestly, whenever you've got a 50-gallon drum of apple cider set up, uh, it's like having canned food. It creates this deep sense of accomplishment and security that it's, it's really difficult to describe to somebody. But apples are, are something that work really well. And with the tall spindle system, we're talking about having apples the second year uh, if you go and buy these trees at the nursery where they're already five-eighths of an inch whip, and then you have to spray those with a, a hormone to make them branch more. Um, the, the trees that I buy from the Cuffle Creek Nursery, because, you know, they're only three, four inches tall, um, they have taken three years, but they have set apples this year. Well, and, and you know, that's more of a long-term, I think, concept when you're dealing with, like, Cuffle Creek. And one of the things I learned from them which would be very advantageous in a system like this, is staging your harvest. Early, mid, and late season apples so that you don't get everything at once. And uh, I, I had them on the show years ago. I probably need to reach out to them again. That's a really cool idea. Let's move a little bit from there. They're like, so we built this place, put our apples in, and you eat enough apples or anything, sooner or later you got to poop. So... <laughs> you know, let's let's talk about how do we handle waste with one of these like off grid cabins? Like what people typically do, at least to start out, like a human manure bucket toilet or something like that. Uh, is there anything better out there than that approach? Yes, I've I've done it all, and honestly, uh, with certain first world expectations, I really I really don't want to deal with it because no matter what you say, the human manure bucket, especially in Texas with our heat, it does stink. Yeah. Um, You can try building a box and putting a fan in it, and if you ventilate enough air, you generally don't smell it, but then you know, people won't come over to visit you when they have to look down in there, right? Yeah. So um, we have a system. We, we didn't develop it. We're just borrowing the best of the best from everywhere we can find it, uh, a flushing compost, worm composting system. Uh, you use a low-flush toilet. And this is flushed into a, a 
a container that can be made out of just uh, brick or, or you can pour it in place with regular cement. So it's something you don't have to necessarily buy a tank for. Uh, it's sizable. You can, you can calculate how much of this you need. And what's amazing about it is you fill this container. You have a, you have a drain that comes off of the bottom or you have a, a, a sewer grinder pump in the bottom to lift that liquid. So the liquid never stays in the composting chamber. And the amazing thing is the more you use it, the less material that is actually in this container. And we find that uh, twice a year you have to add back uh, wood chips to this. The wood provides the carbon uh, and processes out the nitrogen, you know, and the nitrogen coming in helps it break down quicker. But the liquid itself just passes through and is sent into a 75 to 100 foot by two and a half foot wood chip bed that's lined with a liner. And so far, we've never seen a discharge from a system because you plant all sorts of water-hungry uh, plants, maybe even a willow tree, in this uh, growing area. And if you wanted to make a system like this legally, even you could take the end of this system and then put it into a conventional septic system. Okay. Interesting. Ah. And there's an option. Uh, Texas A&M actually has a constructed wetlands uh, set up and design that, of course, has gone through all the, the hoops and is approved, and uh, they can't really argue with a system like that either. So there there are alternatives. And honestly, you, know, you talk about living a better life. Um, if I'm surviving, I want to survive well, and hauling buckets of poop around just, just no. isn't, yeah, you know. I like so. doing it. I mean, I'll do it in an actual emergency situation if I have to. I'm not designing my life that, you know, once every few days you have to pick up a five-gallon bucket of poop and haul it somewhere. I just, no. I, I'm a, I just would like to believe that I am a better designer than that. So I'm going to find something better than that solution. Uh, you talk about survival mindset, and we talk around here, you know, water, food, shelter, sanitation, security, and energy. What would you say is like a luxury survival item next to that? Well, you know, when you're surviving, uh, if you're really surviving, you have the stress situations. They burn up extra vitamins in your diet, and uh, you want something nice. So that luxury item is very unique for each individual. That's something you really got to examine for yourself. Uh, for some people, it might be a big supply of hot chocolate. For me, I, I really enjoy a nice hot tub as well as a, a cold dip right beside the hot mm. tub. So uh, I, I have my aquaponics systems, and uh, I just I at this point will go float with the fish and watch shooting stars at night. So you know, it's it's about your unique desire to plan that in because you know, truly you want to survive in a mentally well way. You know, you don't, you don't want to feel like you're missing out on something. You don't want to be struggling with your, your internal thoughts because, you know, you're just like hiding from something or you're just getting by, you know, you want to build luxuries into your life. And, and you know, that flush toilet might be one of them. Uh, another one might be a recycling solar heated uh, hot water shower where you can use five gallons of water and take a three hour bath uh, mm. for comfort. Uh, it's about designing these things into our life based upon what our personal and individual needs are. And of course, starting all of this with the right attitude, that general human toughness that, Hey, you know what, no matter what, I'm going to be all right. I can do this. Got you, man. So uh, if people want to take your courses, and I know you have on-site courses, people can come out, hang out, spend a couple days. You've got 
pre-designed dates on that. You even got things where people can say, hey, I want to come out and learn this uh, and set their own date. And you've got online courses where people can basically get all the information in video. Where do people find all of that? You can find all of that at our tinygiantlife.biz website. Um, you know, sign up for the email list because you'll be able to uh, get a, a series of emails that basically take you from what is AirCrete to what are its advantages all the way to how do I build with it. So it's a way to get the information coming to you automatically. And I will say this, um, about 30% of the people who come and take a workshop, for example, they decide that AirCrete is not for them. And so, you know, it's not necessarily wasted money to uh, get a video course and find out what is actually going on or to even attend a workshop. Uh, we do our daily workshops where you can schedule it on your time and just come out by the day if you'd like. And uh, you do have some, like, preset ones coming up. You want to talk about maybe what dates are available there? Yeah. Um, we're going to be starting several of those. Let me... That's funny. Uh, caught if, you if, off guard. You don't know the caught, dates of your own workshop. You, you caught me off guard. Don't worry. I've done it. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's in May. Uh. Well, the, the issue is that with these things, it seems like people always wait till the last minute to actually make any reservations. So it's kind of like you don't give it much thought until you're suddenly upon the deadline. Well, here, I got them for you. I'm on your site. I, I've May. got them. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, March uh, 15th was sold out. We got May 31st, and that's going to be a continuing project. It's not from scratch. We're going to continue building a student project in Tyler uh, at the Tyler, Texas workshop, building a 24-foot one-bedroom dome. Uh, June 22nd will be more of the same. And then October 12th, we're going to build one of those rapid-build uh, cylindrical aircrete cast houses uh, as a bug-out location slash uh, getaway vacation spot, and that's out near uh, Trilingua, Texas, uh, near the Big Bend National Park. So that sounds that, like where you get lots of land for a little bit of money. Yeah, they give it away out there because generally it costs more in taxes than the land is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, man, again, the uh, the website is uh, tinygiantlife.biz. Appreciate you being with us today, man. And I uh, hope you have a good day. Thanks for thanks for sharing this with us. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Well, thank you, Jack. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you. Great interview. Really interesting content. The kind of stuff I love, like how to take control of your life. I don't think this is for everybody. Daniel himself said it's not for everybody. But maybe it's for you. You want to learn more? Remember, his website is tinygiantlife.biz. Tinygiantlife.biz. Definitely worth checking out. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the show. Hope you guys did enjoy it. Uh, again, I did. If you want to help support this show, there's two, big, two main ways we can do this. One is you can become a member of my member support brigade. All I'll say about that today is you should do it because it will save you more money than you spend. To learn more, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. Support the show. Do that financially, but get your money back with discounts and make a profit every year. How much better can a program be than the MSB? I built it for that reason. The painless way, though, no direct money out of pocket. Just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com. Whenever you're going to shop online, do your online shopping through tspaz.com, and you help us no matter what you eventually buy. However, I do have items of the day for you that I review. We're kind of going through, if you've noticed, my fertility program because we're in spring. Everybody's planting gardens. So not every day, but every couple of days I bring in another one of the, the core seven items of the fertility 
back around for you. Today is Hydro Organics Cal and Mag Plant Food. Calcium and magnesium are the number one thing that people have deficiencies in in their gardens and have problems with their vegetables and they can't figure it out. They dump more fertilizer, organic or conventional, whatever on there. They give it more water to the point where they overwater. Uh, they use uh, compost and compost tea, uh, use weed teas, etc. Here's the deal. Calcium and magnesium must be present in the right ratios and together and available at the same time for your plants to use either one. On top of this, if you live where you have specifically alkaline soils, it becomes difficult for the plants to get either one, but especially the calcium. So people will bury four or five eggshells when they plant a tomato and still wonder why they have blossom end rot. It's because you have a calcium deficiency. And I know it seems ridiculous that you have a hole full of calcium-containing eggshells and your plant get, can't get to them. If you had soil that was, you know, 6.0, 6.2, you get all the calcium you need from those eggshells, assuming there's magnesium available, okay? Um, but when you have soil that's like 7.2, 7.4, 7.6, like many of you do, like I do, you're going to always have, with at least some of your plants, calcium deficiencies. My water is half calcium. And yet I have calcium deficiencies in some of my plants. Not with this stuff. Start with a soil drench, and then for the rest of the season, you use it as a foliar feed. It is very cost-effective. It's 16 bucks for a 16-ounce bottle. That makes 32 ounces of or 32 gallons of feed. And your plants literally only need a little spritz of it, you know, every few weeks just to correct that imbalance. Check out my article on it. If you want to make your garden go and blow this year. Use my fertility program. You can look at the review today. You can find a tag there that says fertility. It shows you everything in my program. I will guarantee you, if you use my fertility program the way I direct it, you will have outstanding results with your garden. You will not believe it. Check out all the products. But this is going to be the number one thing that people did everything else right, and they have these problems. In my article today, I even tell you what to look for what the two deficiencies look like, how to know which one you're dealing with, and how to fix the problem for $16. Bucks for, multiple, I, I, for most people, one $16 bottle of this stuff, even if you have a big garden, will take care of you for multiple seasons. It's not going to go bad on you. It's calcium and magnesium. It's you know, billion-year-old elements. They're not going to go bad. So put it on the shelf, use it when you need it, and get rid of this problem with this deficiency in your garden. With that, we've come to the end of another show, and we have our song of the day. We're in spiritual week this week, and John Adam had a rare time where he presented a song to me that I just like, I'm not doing it. Um, the song he had for you guys today was Creeping Death by Metallica, and I went through my Metallica phase, right? I had my jacked-up Grand Prix, which, by the way, became known as Creeping Death. The car itself became known as Creeping Death. And I had my Radio Shack stereo head and amplifier and 6x9s in it, I used to drive around like an idiot, blasting music everywhere. Metallica got on there. But this must be Spiritual Week. And Creeping Death from Metallica is about uh, the plague in Egypt and the, the, the death of the firstborn of, of the Egyptians. And there's die, die, die. And it's got this blaring music. And I just, I went, you know what? That's not my spirituality. That's not my spirituality. And it's so divorced from it. And so divorced from the subject we were talking about today, which is so empowering that I, I called an audible, as I say, and I, I picked my own song for today. And on the surface, it may not even seem like a spiritual song. The song is World, and it's by Five for Fighting, which I, I love Five for Fighting. 
And um, this song is about creating the world that you want. One of the most important lines in it is, history starts now. In other words, what you do today is the history of tomorrow. And when I look at things from a spiritual viewpoint, and I have similarities and differences with many of you that listen to this show, but when I think about spirituality, I think about the glory and the beauty that is creation itself. For those that don't know, I am not a follower of any organized religion. I call myself a deist. I believe there is a God, a first cause, a creative force, that I do not understand, but I can know through the creation. But the thing that I'm most grateful for in my life and in the lives of everybody around me is that at this point in time, if we understand that history starts now, at least the new history starts now, and we realize how much we know and how much we can do and how much we can change things, we can change the face of this planet Someday humans may change the face of other planets in the solar system or beyond. We are co-creators. We are part of the creation itself. We can change the face of the planet as a species, for better or for worse. But what each of us can do, and what this song is about, is there's something we can touch and something that we can change. With permaculture, we can change the face of the planet in the tiny little postage stamp that is our own backyard. As fellow human beings on this planet, we can change the face of our friends and our family from happy to sad, or from sad to happy, depending on what we do. We can, in our lives, create discord, or we can create joy. We have the power today to change tomorrow by our choices and by our actions for better or for worse history starts now what are you going to do with it with that it's been jack spirico with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't full of wishes. a time machine a magic wand a globe made out of gold No instructions or commandments Laws of gravity or indecisions to uphold Printed on the box I see Acme's build a world to be Take a chance, grab a piece Help me to believe History starts now Should there be people or people Money, funny pedestals For fools who never pay Raise your army, choose your steeple Don't be shy
Start now.